Amen. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we'll read uh, verses 1 through 11 to get something of the context here. This is a new section of the Gospel of Mark after chapter 13. Jesus somewhat ends his teaching, ends his teaching on the, the last days, the end times. And now we move into, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, anyways, the suffering, the passion of Jesus. So thought this was an appropriate passage to consider as we gather around the table later on in today's service. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's holy and inspired word. It's given to us for our good. After the passage, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. You may respond with thanks be to God. Now the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever surprised yourself with a gift of generosity, showing of generosity? You surprise even yourself by the amount of money you end up giving to something, to a charity, to an offering. Perhaps a gift in the mail to a family in need. Perhaps a donation drive to help with someone's medical bills. On paper, it may make no sense at all to consider the amount that you have available to you and the amount that you might give to something. It would make no sense at all, and yet you know something deep inside of you tells you that it is right and it is good and it is beautiful. Generosity is a a freeing thing. It's a, a wonderful thing. But generosity overflows from something that is found deeper. We had the 75th anniversary this past week of D-Day. And there were soldiers who gathered at uh, Normandy. 
uh, perhaps for the last time, because every five years they gather. This is the 75th year. By the 80th anniversary, even the very youngest who are there and still surviving will be about 100 years of age. And so we see uh, in our culture, in our country, uh, a going away of a generation. And sadly, perhaps we already have forgotten too much of what they have done. But if we think back to the 40th anniversary of D-Day, Ronald Reagan gave one of the the greatest speeches an American president has ever given, and he talked about uh, what it was that allowed these soldiers to to show such courage and bravery, to, in a sense, show the generosity of being willing to give their life for their country. He said it was something deeper. He said it was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love. Something within their hearts told them that some things are worth dying for. To give your life to something is an amazing showing of generosity, and the same can be said of when we show immense generosity with our resources. It needs to be rooted in the firm conviction of the worth of the thing, the worth of the cause, the family, the person to which you are giving. So today we gather around the table, the table of our Lord, and we aim to remind ourselves of the beauty of our Lord, of the beauty of his matchless work for us. And his worth, his worthiness that compels us to come to him, that compels us to break our flask of ointment and to pour it on his head in awe and in worship and in thanksgiving. Four things as we work through this text. The first is a valuable gift. A valuable gift. Second, a reckless gift. Third, a practical gift. And finally, give to the one who gave. A valuable gift, a reckless gift, a practical gift. Give to the one who gave. This passage, famous passage, and many of us have read it, perhaps heard sermons on it before many times. You can find parallel accounts in Matthew chapter 26 and John chapter 12. There's a similar story in Luke chapter 7, but that seems to be a different account altogether. For different reasons, Matthew and Mark and John include and exclude certain details. So we're going to be considering the story as it comes to us from Mark and make sure that we highlight what he wants us to notice in this story. Jesus, in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, is reclining at the table. This is a, an abnormal set of details from Mark. He, he doesn't often give this precision, uh, this level of precision when he's going through his gospel as far as where where Jesus is. But what's interesting about that is uh, side by side with that great detail, he omits the name of this woman. You can go and read elsewhere to find out who this woman is. But the fact that Mark does not tell us the name of this woman is important to notice, and we'll come back to that later. Verse 3, one of the most amazing verses in all of Mark's gospel, our translation, it says, A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. That tells us something. That Mark is going uh, to this extent to communicate to us the value of uh, this jar. This jar of perfume, this jar of ointment. It occurs to us in the Greek something like this. Alabaster jar, perfume, nard, pure, very costly. He runs together a bunch of words to impress upon us the value of the gift. This is expensive stuff. 
But then, of course, the, the value of the gift is contrasted with the perhaps uh, normal social status of this woman who brings it. We know from elsewhere that she is not of any consequence socially or financially. We are told that the the value of this ointment is around one year's wages, 300 denarii. Denarius, about a a day's wage, about 300 working days in a year, is about one year's wages. For someone who is of normal socioeconomic status, this is a lot of money. The average American household, just for simplicity's sake, let's say, makes around $50,000 a year. The kind of household that makes that average income could never part reasonably with an entire year of money. Imagine every day you work from here until next June and assigning every cent to one cause or to one recipient. Since this woman is of normal socioeconomic status, it it forces us to wonder, how does she even have this jar of ointment, this pure nard? Various suggestions might be correct. It could be an investment of sorts. It could be a 401k before the 401k existed. It could be a family heirloom, something that was handed down through generations. It could be an emergency fund, a measure of security. Sometimes families will have a piece of very expensive jewelry that has an interesting history behind it, and they know that at this point it's worth a lot. And so the thought in their mind is if things ever get really bad, we know we have something we could sell for $5,000 or $10,000. It's a measure of security. This is a valuable gift. But it's a reckless gift in the minds of some. It's a reckless gift. Verse 3 continues by saying that this woman does something. What does she do with this jar of ointment? She breaks it. She breaks it. What, what does this breaking signify? It shows us that she is totally committed to expending every single last ounce of this ointment on Jesus. There's no saving it. There's no pouring out some of it and leaving some for later. It becomes totally devoted to Jesus. It's all for him. In the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a, a piece of property and they say that they are bringing the entire value to give to the work of the church, but of course they hold something back and in so doing they are lying to the Holy Spirit as the Apostle Peter says and they are struck dead for withholding something and claiming that they were giving all. There's no such thing going on here. This woman breaks the jar and gives everything that is found inside. So this catches the attention of some present. They say this is, this is reckless. We find out in the Gospel of John that the chief complainer here is Judas Iscariot. We find out later in this passage that Judas goes from this episode, from this account, to go and arrange the betrayal of Jesus for what? For money. Concerned about the value of this ointment, And in so doing, he shows his greed by later on betraying Jesus. Something that makes us cringe if if you're, you're sensitive to this kind of thing when you read this passage, that statement, why waste this perfume? Can you imagine being in the presence of Jesus and saying that? It should make you wince. Cringe. Why waste this perfume? Is it wasting to pour this upon Jesus? Jesus shows us that it is not wasted. 
In the past uh, couple of months, maybe month plus, not exactly sure when it happened, several weeks ago, cathedral in Notre Dame, uh, the cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, uh, was burned. It's an amazing piece of architecture, amazing piece of, of history. I've been there, very beautiful. Uh, it strikes you with awe. But it's not just an icon of history. It's, it's not just a piece of architecture. It's more than that. And even though we have real and significant differences with the Roman Catholic tradition, we appreciate at least their strong emphasis on the worship and the worship space in which they have their mass. There's a communication there, a communication that what we are doing is vitally important. Look at the building. What we are doing is important. It's central to our lives as followers of Christ. It was an emphasis that was shared by most people at one time. You go, go into a village and you would see several buildings that perhaps were pitched taller than houses, but there would be one building that stood above all of them. It would be the church. The height of the building was to communicate the, the heavenly nature of worship and the importance that human beings placed upon the exercise of worship, upon the doing of worship itself. When Notre Dame burned, there was nearly a billion dollars given in the next couple of days. I think really an amazing showing of generosity and an outpouring of concern and care. But one interesting reaction that I kept seeing was people saying, how can there be a billion dollars given to this to rebuild this cathedral? Shouldn't that money be given to the poor? Shouldn't that money have been given to build wells for drinking water? Shouldn't it have been given to do something productive and useful? In the world. Why waste, people were saying. Why waste this money on a cathedral? It could have been done, could have been used to do something practical. Jesus looks at this act of worship by this woman and he calls it beautiful. The word beautiful can mean useful, it can mean morally good and pure, it can mean praiseworthy. We might attribute some part of all of those meanings to what she does here. What this woman does in using this ointment, this one year's wages, this beautiful act of devotion, it deserves no scrutiny because it is right and it is good. It is morally pure and it is praiseworthy. Why? Why? Because Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Rather, Jesus is worthy. He's worthy. What this passage confronts us with, the truth that we are confronted with in this passage, is that nothing that you can find on this earth, no precious metal, no jewel, no bank account, no investment, no human relationship, no hidden treasure, can compare with Jesus. Why? Because nothing on this earth compares to his worth, his purity, his beauty, and his glory. This ointment could have been sold, that the money might have been given to the poor, Judas and perhaps others say. It's a pragmatic, a practical argument. It makes sense when you consider things with an earthbound lens. If, if this life is all that there is, then indeed uh, we shouldn't give something to this uh, metaphysical, beyond the physical world kind of truth. It's a practical argument. Give it to the poor. 
But what this woman does is beautiful when you consider it in light of both heaven and earth, in light of ultimate things, because ultimate things tell us that worship is itself practical. Worship is itself pragmatic because of the need of the human soul to give to God and to give to him in worship. When Jesus calls his first disciples, Philip goes to Nathanael and and says to him, we have found the Messiah and he's come from Nazareth. Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. Come and see. Philip says more than he realizes there because what's going to happen is that all of the apostles, those who are called by Jesus, are going to see that he is not merely from Nazareth. He is from heaven itself. That's where he comes from. And no earthly thing compares with the one who comes who is native to heaven. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Here's the issue about being pragmatic. To worship Christ, to give him something of value, is never a waste because we are embodied souls, because we need to worship God, and because Jesus is worthy to worship him, to be devoted to him. Nothing is more practical than that. Jesus, the one, as he, as he walks the earth, he still never ceases to be the one about whom we read in Isaiah 40. Have you not heard? Do you not know? The Lord is the everlasting God. Jesus, the everlasting God, the one who is worthy of all praise and adoration. Samuel Rutherford writes in his book, The Loveliness of Christ, Oh, that we could put our treasure in Christ's hands and give him our gold to keep. And give him our crown. The desire of your heart ought to be that you could see your Savior and you could give him everything of value that you have as a way to show him that you believe and you know that he is of greater value. That he is worthy. Jesus, of course, does not disregard caring for the poor. In fact, this passage only makes sense if you can assume that caring for the poor is an important thing to do. That it is a good thing to do. That it is right. Jesus, in a sense, points them forward to saying, I look forward to seeing how much generosity you show to the poor. The poor you will always have with you. Thus, use the time you have with them to care for them. But don't forget about the ultimate things. Don't forget about worship. Don't get caught up in a vision of what you can make this world without the worship of God. Only God can satisfy. Only God can satisfy both the rich And the poor. So it's a practical gift. What this woman does, viewed as reckless by some, it is practical because of the necessity that we have to worship God, to be rightly constituted to Him, and to give Him our all because He is worth it, He is worthy. But we also see that there's a pointing forward to something even more that Jesus does. We're pointed to the cross, we're pointed to His saving work, thus we end. By saying, give to the one who gave. Give to the one who gave. See, it's not just who Jesus is. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 6. The Lord of hosts. The the, the one before whom Isaiah hits the ground and is immediately convinced that he is undone. Because he is in the presence of a holy God. And no one can see the holiness of God and live. Because of his sinfulness. 
See, that's who Jesus is, but when you consider who, what Jesus does, that he is not just the King of kings and Lord of lords who sits high and enthroned above the heavens, but that he is the Lamb who was slain, the one who becomes the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the heaven-sent Son of God, who humbled himself for you to cleanse you, to justify you, to present you to his Father, blameless in heaven, the creator of all things, for whom all things were created, it must stun us to see the price that he paid. This woman gives him this alabaster jar of ointment, but in doing so, she's anointing him for his death, paving the road to to the cross. He's the only one who can satisfy, and he is the same one who gives us what we need. He is the only one who can satisfy, and he is the same one who gives us exactly what we need. That's the wonder of the gospel. We gather around the table today. Be reminded that the devotion that we are to have, the kind of of commitment that we are to show that's like unto this woman, all of that will never impress God. It may please him that we give of ourselves, but the important thing to remember is that we are freed to give of ourselves because of what Jesus has done in setting us free and saying that your sins are paid for and saying that you can be accounted as righteous in the sight of God simply by believing in the work, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. This act of devotion then confronts us with the necessity to do the same. Give to the one who gave. Let your generosity be found in the generosity, the humility, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask yourself, what is the alabaster jar of ointment that you could never part with? What is the price that you've attached to your communion with God? Whatever you would hold back, whatever you hold on to, that's quite possibly an idol in your heart. Jesus is more worthy than all of it. But even more importantly, I think what this text brings us to is it's not riches or gold, it's not perfume or ointment that our God wants. He would have you. He wants you. He would have your life. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Fill thou my life, O Lord my God, in every part with praise. The most valuable thing that that we can give is ourselves. It's our lives. When loved ones become sick, we immediately take them without a second thought to give them the most expensive treatments because we'd, we'd rather be saddled with a mountain of medical debt than lose them at an unexpected time. We know intuitively that our lives are very precious. That they're more valuable than our bank account. And that is what our Savior wants. He wants us. He wants our devotion because he has purchased us for him through his death. You were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6 says. You were bought with a price. He has bought you. He has claimed you for his own. And to those who are accounted in Jesus Christ, that can never be reversed. That can never be taken away. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Samuel Rutherford says once again, let him, let Christ make anything out of me that he would be glorified in my salvation for I know I am made for him. 
Do you understand that you were made for God? Do you understand that being found in Christ, you have been remade for his glory? Mark decides to not tell us this woman's name, even amidst the other details that he gives to us. And he says, wherever the gospel is preached throughout all of the world, this woman's story will be told in memory of her. Isn't it amazing that even without giving us her name, he says, this story will be told in every corner of the world, wherever the gospel is preached. And this story of what she does, this beautiful act of devotion, this beautiful act of worship, it's certainly not because of who she is. It's not because of what her name is. It's not because of what her status is. Mark doesn't even tell us those things. It's because the beautiful act of worship and devotion that she shows us here, she is showing to us the ultimate purpose that we are given to live into in this world. One life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Your identity is grounded in the one who gave himself for you, so give to the one who gave. He can cleanse you of your past. He can anchor you in the present. He can give you a hope for the future. Come and see. Come and share. Come and eat and drink to nourish your weary soul in the waters of grace, in the pastures of the Good Shepherd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel. We thank you that through Christ we see, we see the price that was paid. The one who came from heaven is the everlasting God to humble himself. Father, anything that we can give is not enough. So we ask for the grace and the strength to give ourselves as a sacrifice of thanks, of praise. Minister to our souls now that we might do just that, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We thank you for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And we entrust you to work by your Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen. If you would go...